interviewing the leading private equity executives and unlocking the secrets of success. Welcome to the Private Equity Podcast with Alex Rawlings. everybody and welcome back to the Raw Selection Private Equity Podcast. Joining us today is Charlie Chip Chase, Managing Director of Petra Funds Group, a fund administration provider to the private equity industry. Welcome and thank you very much for sharing your insights, Charlie. Thanks for having me, Alex. Good to be here. Charlie, as is customary, if you could give us a 60 to 90 second breakdown of you, please. Yes, I started my career Back end of the 1990s, working in international law firms, mainly in London, but I've spent time in Hong Kong, Tokyo, and New York. These were big US and UK law firms and was doing a deal with a private equity fund called Riverstone and was hired probably back end of 2013 uh, as their first European general counsel. And about two years into that, was also asked to head up the ESG practice at Riverstone. And by that, I mean, there was nothing. I was. I had a poorly drafted ESG policy, and it was how do we redefine the ESG and what it means for our private equity fund and our strategy, and to go from there into something more sophisticated around monitoring, reporting, such that you were able to answer the questions their LPs are asking for. I joined Petra Funds Group probably about eighteen months ago, linking up with my former colleagues from Riverstone. Uh, Petra Funds Group is a premium outsourced, high-touch fund administration business to private markets firms. Principal markets we act in are are in North America and and continental Europe. We do all back office and mid-office services to private equity. Part of that is involved in advising them on SEC compliance and also ESG monitoring, reporting, et cetera, as as funds grow. Uh, I hope that gives you a bit of a flavor of what we do. I'm happy to take more questions. Absolutely. So what's one mistake that you see private equity firms making and what actions would you suggest to correct them? Yeah, it's a good question, Alex. I think one of the questions, one of the sort of points we see as sort of mistakes is particularly as new funds go out or funds who've done deal by deal and are looking to make their first institutional raise, they, they start to sort of figure out, well, look, I need a large back office to handle all the sort of stuff that me as the investment professional doesn't want to handle fund accounting, capitals, distributions, all the fund reporting to the LPs. I think LPs are, are allocating capital to general partners to really do two things, which is to make the investments, get their deal pipeline in play, but also to, to produce returns and then raise more money. Not all the money shy of administering funds. That's something we are a mistake that some make, but the more, the smarter General partners are coming to the market now and realizing that's not what they're being given LP capital to do. And they outsource this to, frankly, to fund administration firms like Petra. And there's a whole industry out there that does this. So I think that's probably the biggest mistake and how they do it. I think outsourcing is a hard thing to do because you are giving your back office administration and effectively your LP communication lines to a third party. And you need to look to someone who is a true partner and someone that can help do make your fund do things that are excellent in the eyes of your limited partners, but also do so in a way that 
can enable that fund to scale over the, the medium to long term. I think your LPs are the key audience there. And I think if you get the partnership right and the outsourcing works, then it can really make you a top decile fund over the long term. So your experience sits heavily within ESG. What's your perspective on does the ESG policies, procedures of the private equity firm have a significant weighting on LP's decision-making of whether to invest in a fund or not? Oh, absolutely. It may not have done in the past, but definitely in the last five or six years, you're seeing LPs asking on a fundraise a lot more questions and involving this in part of their LP ops diligence of a new fund manager and even existing fund managers who they're re-upping with. They're asking very detailed questions around the program and stewardship of the assets and how the monitoring has happened, how you will screen investments, diligence investments, how it'll go through IC, and then also how you will report to your LPs on this. And I think it's become a such a key part of LPs investment thesis. It's something that general partners can't really avoid now. And I think you're just seeing it more and more becoming very important to what they're how their investment agenda and investment thesis. And this is, I get it because these limited partners have their own stakeholders who are the pension plans, the endowments, the people that they represent. And they're investing capital, obviously to make a return, but also to do so in a way that is helping to fight climate change, helping to stop, promote diversity and stop bad practices in business, tax strategies, bribery, corruption. They, they look at this through an E, an S, and a G lens. And the, the managers who get this and embed this, and this is the key part of where we come out from Petra and where we see some mistakes being made, is looking at ESG as a value creation tool. And I think some of your previous guests have also touched on this. Uh, and it, it's really important because I think well, firstly, the data, you, you look at any McKinsey study, the data bears this out that funds or even companies that put ESG as a central pillar of their sort of culture, their policies, their investment thesis, and the way they go about their day-to-day generally do better on a financial returns basis. So I think because there is that corollary between good ESG adherence and good returns, then the smarter fund managers out there, and that's now the majority of people out there, are doing ESG in some form or another. What data points are LPs looking at and focused on when it comes to ESG reporting from PE? It, it really depends on each limited partner. A lot of people come at this. There are some generic questions that look at how you're set up internally, what your structure is. Do you have a committee? Do you have a policy? How is that policy throw, flow through into your investments and through into the hold period and then ultimately to exit? Is the firm aligned on that? How does that work across different strategies or different funds? For example, if you have private equity or private credit or more of an impact focus, what sort of other partnerships in the ESG ecosystem are you kind of signed up to? And by that, I mean people like the uh, UNPRI, which is a fantastic resource for private equity. I think there are over 700 uh, funds signed up and a number of LPs signed up, and that grows ever more every, every year. There's a fantastic, what I call ESG 
Practitioners Group that if you are part of the UNPRI, you can get access to. It's called the Initiative Climate International or ICI. That has got some fantastic tools and the people who are involved in that are the leaders in that know who they are, but they are doing some really great work around decarbonization, net zero, but also some of the other basic ESG building blocks. But there's also things like the energy, the ESG data convergence initiative set up by Carlisle and CalPERS, but with a, a host of different LPs and GPs, some, I, I don't know how many trillion dollars of AUM are involved in that, but they are looking to get uh, a convergence into the metrics at which LPs are asking for from their general partners and the general partners are therefore able to get from their portfolio. At the moment, there is a, and and if you speak to any ESG professional out there, there is a bit of a data problem. There's so much data going out there. It's trying to sort of figure out and scrutinize what that data actually means for that general partner and how that can be used by that general partner to make year-on-year improvements in its portfolio and make it a top performer when it comes to ESG and therefore raise more capital from the limited partner community. What are your what would be your recommendations for private equity firms to that are wanting to upgrade their ESG to become maybe best in class, maybe world class? Fairly big question, I appreciate. But what are some of the points where you'd be like, this is an area where typically firms are weak that you'd want to focus on? This is an area that typically LPs will be looking at and is the most important element if there is one from there. But how do private equity firms overall upgrade those ESG processes and where do they focus on it? We say to all our clients that they have two audiences, really in terms of stakeholders. As a general partner or a private equity firm, you have to listen to what your limited partners are asking you. And increasingly, you have to look at the horizon and, 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 and see what, where regulation is trending. We've gone from a period of what I would say is more qualitative reporting on ESG into an era which is going to be much more quantitative in in character. LPs and also the regulators, which is following hot on the heels of that, if you see what the SEC or Brussels are doing or wanting to do, you see what states like California are putting out a couple of weeks ago in terms of emissions reporting. They're looking for data, raw hard data, because they have to feed back to their investment committees and ultimately their stakeholders. I think one of the kind of to answer your question and come back to that and just to frame it that way, I think one of the things we're seeing, particularly in the middle market, is you're seeing private equity firms who have got an ESG, a head of ESG, put that title on anyone and they haven't hired someone in or they haven't given it to a, sometimes they give it to the CFO or a general counsel or uh, investor relations person sort of wears the ESG hat. The lift on ESG is getting heavier and heavier. If you think about sort of the amount of data that if you had 50 companies in your portfolio across different geographies and sub-sectors and strategies and funds, you're trying to get that information into a central, into the fund, analyze it, and then report on it. And you may need to do that on a quarterly basis if you're an SFDR fund and regulation around the EU, around the CSRD is coming in. That's going to require audit-worthy information. So there's a huge pressure, I think, the problem is there's a constraint on talent within those PE firms. And therefore, they are having to look externally to outsource providers to help them with that, frankly, that heavy lift on an annualized basis. In the same way, you wouldn't have a private equity fund doing its own accounts uh, or a, a company doing its own accounts. You, you need 
an auditor, someone to help you do that. And that's kind of where I see this trending for ESG. There's a lot of data out there. And to put it on one person or two person, two people's shoulders is is unfair. And frankly, you're gonna you're gonna run aground at some stage um, because the data is not gonna be audit ready. It may not be right. It may cause you a legal or compliance issue down the track. I think there is a, if you speak to any ESG professional, any ESG lawyer out there, they'll say there is maybe a, a sort of a time bomb that's coming in terms of ESG disclosures that have been made externally from the private equity firm, not just reports, but also other snippets that go into AGM decks and go out in LP communications or maybe go out in social media when scrutinized and, and lawyers will pour over this information, uh, you're putting information out there in the public domain that should come back to bite you. So, and, and that could be from the plaintiff's bar or it could be from SEC enforcement or some other regulator. I think, and this is where we come at this from our you know, legal background, is making sure disclosure discipline is at the center of this. Uh, and there's a balance there to showing your LPs or your ESG credentials and your ESG success stories, but also where you're actually doing, rolling your sleeves up and doing hard work, but also doing so in a way that, frankly, you're not over your skis. You're just saying exactly what you're doing. And that's what it is. This is just data at the end of the day, Alex, and people will interpret it how they will. But you put bad data out there or unanalyzed data out there, I think there's, and, and statements, you run the risk. Sorry to interrupt here. Just a quick note to highlight our new sponsor, Grafter. The private FPC market is rapidly shifted to a data-driven, proprietary deal sourcing standard. Grafter provides the window into over 7 million middle market private companies. Contact Grafter so you can access the market first. Request a demo at www.grafter.com. Now back to the podcast. So regardless of capital raising and that LP driven narrative on ESG. What, from your perspective, is the benefit for private equity to fully adopt correctly ESG initiatives, both in the firm and the portfolio? Yeah. So I think if you look into the data, it will bear this out. The companies that put ESG or some version of ESG sustainability impact, impact's different. And I, I know you've discussed this on previous podcasts, but if you're looking at this now and you embed credible ESG architecture into your fund structure, into your fund investment professionals, into your operating partners, into your portfolio company C-suite. And that filters down and there is regular engagement on that will bear out with better, better results, better outcomes. And by that, your company exit multiples will be higher on average. You will attract better talent. People want to come and work at companies that are not trying to harm the climate that are, are treating people with respect and inclusive and have diverse workforces, are thoughtful about water usage, are thoughtful about other ways in which they go about business, which frankly is, is a governance point. And I've always thought that governance, while part of the ESG uh, acronym, sort of sits across the whole of the ESG space, which is toned from the top. If your CEO gets it or the head of your fund gets it, they will have their own ambitions and that will be different depending on sector, geography, et cetera. But I think that's, that's going to be really important and better rate, better relationships, your regulators, lower cost of capital. The data is there and people are doing more data analysis around this. And I, I can't see the data on average going in a different way. So I think the 
benefits are, this is something that you should do. This is something you're going to be required by your regulators to report on. So that's that starts to become something that is mandatory. This is not, we're moving away from this voluntary reporting paradigm into something where Brussels, K-regulator, SEC will, will require this information. And if you can't provide it, then that's going to be difficult. And we're seeing a lot of firms, those ones who are really sort of lent into this, prepping for that regulatory lift, which effectively is mirroring a lot of what they've been doing for, with their LPs over the last few years. There are certain things that are different about these, and it can be nuanced because I think the biggest question we have from our clients is just cut through the noise. We've got ISSB, TCFD, SASB, GRI. What does it all mean? And should I join the PRR? Who's the EDCI? And it is where we find ourselves. But I think the, the people that hire talent, and by that internal talent into their firms, into their portfolio companies who get this and outsource thoughtfully some of the stuff is going to be a heavy lift and require more manpower that a GP will not want to probably build headcount for are going to be, there will be winners and losers in this. And they will probably be the people who are, who are raising more money for bigger funds as we go through the next five to 10 years. I, I think one last point is the ESG as a, as a term is, is, is something that I think has, we've seen polarize people over the last 18 to 24 months, particularly in the US and particularly on some sides of the aisle. And you've seen sort of legislators in certain states in the US legislate against ESG and asking their capital allocators deliberately to only look at funds on a returns basis, not on non-pecuniary benchmarks or, or analyses. It's interesting if you got into the, and we don't have time for this today, but if you get into the weeds of those bills, they're very heavily slanted against ESG. And so I think if you are a fund, particularly with USLPs, and particularly as we go through into the presidential elections next November, you're going to find that drum beat gets higher. So if you're in one state, they're going to have a very different view if their governor and their attorney general is pushing pushing a different agenda to another state, which may be very pro-ESG. But I keep coming back to the capital, sorry, the value creation piece, which I think and that data sort of underpins why this is good. Yes, I have a bet with a friend that ESG will probably not exist as a term in, in the next next two to three years. They'll call it something else like responsible investing. Just like we've come from CSR, which was very different to ESG, it'll be something, it may just be called investing or just sensible, straightforward, good governance. It's It has polarized people though. What do you love about the private equity industry? And equally, what do you dislike about it? Look, I think this is going to sound a bit cheesy, but I, I think the people that I've met and worked with through my private equity career have, look, generally they're smart, they're driven, they're multifaceted, they work in a fast-paced environment. And that's not to say people that work outside of private equity aren't, but I've, I've come across some impressive characters who sort of work in a space that one minute they're looking, their head is in a financial model, the next minute they are commenting on a legal document and the next minute they're off addressing a trade union to talk about a potential sale. I mean, this is a skill set that these people, and you see the managing directors, the partners of these firms gather and marshal very, very well. They're also able to raise capital, they get the trust of their limited partners, governments and regulators. They are also out there thinking of ways in which 
frankly, they can make money for their limited partners and make better risk-adjusted returns. They're looking at, and you've got to look, look at things, that, you know, things that Apollo and some of the other funds have done around Athene and Athora insurance businesses. I, you know, they're very clever people. And I just, uh, as the lawyer in a private equity firm, the head of ESG there, you sort of play in that space and you see them every day. And I hopefully a little bit has rubbed off on me. But uh, yeah, I think that the people uh, and the professionalization of private equity firms is, is, has been a real sort of insight for me. Equally, Charlie, what do you dislike about private equity? This came up on one of your previous ones that I had the benefit of listening to. And I think it rang true 100%. And you will smile as you hear this, but humility. I think this is not a general, this is a very generalized statement. I think what I dislike is, and you can very quickly see this when you enter a room, and it's probably motivated by fear or something else, but projecting knowledge or experience beyond your years, saying this will happen. And I think really it's experience that sort of will take away those hard edges. And generally what we see is as you go through that career progression, you see those hard edges coming off. But I think people need to realize Private equity has a huge place to play in terms of the energy transition, for example, and solving some of the global challenges we have on offer. I mean, I think it was some research said six trillion is needed to sort of, you know, to help us transition to a low carbon economy in the next 30 years. A lot of that will come from private equity. And some will obviously come from the publics and and other sectors, but private equity has a huge role to play. And I think if you can, and, and I wouldn't be surprised if, it is a private equity-backed business that will crack the nut in terms of a future energy source or, or some other sort of technology that will drive us on as a human race. But it's, it's like I say that, humility. I've met many, many humble private equity people, but I think there is a sort of an external view looking into private equity that, we're, that private equity is all about. Well, it's like watching succession or billions. It's just people flying around in jets and on fancy locations making loads of money. And that's not the case. There's there's a lot of hard work that goes into turning one dollar into two. It's not it may sound a, a little bit sort of trite, but it, it, it having worked in a place for 10 years and seen a lot of our clients at work and the way they think about things and come at problems, they're they're smart people and they will solve this. They may not solve everything, but it's a very big part of this asset class has a huge part to play in solving some of these global challenges. What are your influences? What do you read? What do you watch? What do you listen to that you should recommend that others check out? Yeah, what do I? I'm listen wise. I'm I'm a bit old school. Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen, Neil Young. Can't get better than better the boss in terms of watching. Well, I mentioned a couple billions. Succession. I think they've just been <laughs> really well written. And Succession's written by an Englishman, which is fantastic. But I have. I have a plan one day uh, to write a screenplay for a private equity version of Succession. Having been in and around private equity, there would be some fantastic characters, some great sort of vignettes there that I'd love to see get to the silver screen, but I may never get around to that. Uh, in terms of books, look, Petra put out its summer reading list, I think back in July, but I think some of the ones that I end up getting, I've got swallowed up by an author called Ben McIntyre, who you may know, he wrote about the origins of the SAS. Special Forces at the end, at the beginning of the, in the Second World War, and I've sort of read his book about Colditz. I'm now reading this about an agent, a double agent in the war called in the Second World War called Agent Zigzag. It's fascinating. It's very detailed. Very. It doesn't translate well into movies as we saw with Operation Mincemeat, but but would recommend it if you like that sort of military spy and SAS Special Forces history. 
And then I think one book which I read over the summer, which slightly scared me, but it was a it was a recommendation from a former colleague, was Rebecca Acosta. She wrote a book, I think about 10 years ago, called The Watchman's Rattle. And this describes, it, it sort of describes the sort of cognitive gridlock that sets in when sort of complexity races ahead of the brain's ability to manage it. And by that, she's looked at different civilizations from the Mayans to the Roman Empire and sort of, they've all risen and they've all fallen away and they probably knew why they were falling away, but they didn't have, they weren't able to cross that cognitive threshold to deal with it. And that's partly a sort of neurological thing. I'm not, I'm not getting too technical here, but we only generally use certain part of our brain, at least I do, and we don't access, I think it's something called the frontal lobe or whatever, but it, it was kind of worrying it sort of saying, because the first part of the book was saying, we're probably not equipped to deal with the climate change and the current problems that we face today. But the second part of the book then go, talks about crossing that and actually being able to, the, the human brain is actually very resourceful. When it's put into a challenge position, we can sometimes surprise ourselves and come up with solutions. And that's, again, going back to what I was talking about, private equity, smart people put in the solution, put in a position where they have to come up with something. Otherwise, the, the civilization we know will, will cease to exist. And I don't want to frighten your listeners, but, but we're talking about hundreds and maybe even thousands of years ahead. But it's, yeah, it was just quite interesting. Not my usual read, but yeah, good, good book. Very interesting. That's a bit of a, a different recommendation, so I appreciate that. What's, <laughs> how best do people get in touch, Charlie, should they wish to do so, to reach out to yourself? Probably best through, through, through our website. There's a way to contact us. We're based here in London. I'm based here in London. Uh, in Mayfair, we have offices um, in LA, New York, Boston, and Amsterdam. But drop me an email. I don't know if you put them in the show notes or um, yeah, it's charlie at petrofundsgroup.com and happy to have a conversation. We have plenty of conversations, Alex, with private equity funds and other people in and around the private equity uh, complex. It's just we realize there are a lot of people offering the services we offer. We think we bring something different because we've all been in private equity funds. We're senior people who've, who this is not our first rodeo. And I think, yeah, be, be happy to hear from people. Excellent. We'll definitely stick that in the show notes. Well, Charlie, thank you very much for joining us. Really appreciate the insight. Really appreciate the sharing and, and discussion points of, of ESG, which is a hotly discussed topic, certainly in Europe, and it continues to move into, into the US as a focus. So thank you very much for everything you've shared. Thanks for having me, Alex. Thanks a lot. And as always, thank you very much for those who've joined us and listened in today. Should you ever need support with private equity professionals or portfolio executive hiring, please do reach out to us a real selection. And if you've not already done so, please do subscribe and you'll be notified of the next podcast, which comes out in two weeks. Until the next time, keep smashing it. And thank you very much for listening. Thank you for listening to the Private Equity Podcast on www.raw-selection.com.